Monty lives here. Sorry? Does the man called Monty live here? 
Monkey? Mo Monty. Monty the monkey. What is this? <laughs> it is a little recorder. What's your name? Why? What is your name? Why, why? What is your good name? We want you to be on our podcast to say hello to our listeners. It's a radio show. <laughs> Thank you very much for taking us. You're very kind. Hang on, I'm going to take a break. It's not yoga, no. It's a, a man who lives here. But he lives in a blue house. You don't know if this is the house. Yeah, because no, I many times arrived here. Many times. Yeah. Daily two times I'm coming here. Okay. I, I first time heard this name is house as Guru. Guru Guru. Guru Guru. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's hope that this is it. We are the big blue house on the left, first floor. This looks like the right house. Thank you so much for taking us. We do appreciate it. Open sesame. keeps out. Traffic, monkeys, cows. I'm just walking up the stairs. There he is. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Okay, thank just you. I'd record a little bit thank of, uh, how's it going? Good, come up. Excellent, thank you. Welcome back to The Reset Rebel with me, Joe Yule. And today, as you've just been hearing on the uh, Tuk Tuk journey here, we're here with a filmmaker, Monty Waits. And Monty was given the exclusive access to the first ever medical trial to psilocybin, the psychoactive ingredient in magic mushrooms, to a group of volunteers suffering from clinical depression. His remarkable film follows three of the volunteers and their families and the ambitious staff running the trial, who are hoping this controversial treatment will have the power to transform millions of lives. So, unfortunately, I didn't get the pleasure to witness the screening the other evening at the Jolly Cafe, and, um, but I'm hoping to catch it in a couple of weeks' time, when you're hopefully going to be doing another screening of the film. So I'm here on Monty's beautiful rooftop, which has got some wonderful Indian style and Goa colour and sparkles. And um, I'm, yeah, very, very, very honoured that you would invite me here to your wonderful home up in the magical rooftops. Good afternoon. Hello. Can I ask you just to move a little bit closer? I don't bite, I promise. I just haven't got a very long arm. Um, so, yeah, what brought you to Goa, um, obviously, at this wonderful time of year when everybody else in London is kind of uh, being snowed in? Well, we got here in August, um, having decided that we wanted to have a year out to sort of, in a slightly cliched way, heal the body and heal the mind. Um, and so we took a year out um, to do nothing and um, put our daughter in a local school here and, um, you know, we'll see what, see what comes of it. But so far, so good. So you say you need to heal the body and heal the mind. What is it about India? I mean, a lot of people have been saying this to me. I've been here for sort of six weeks now, and I come here every year for the last eight years. It is definitely, like, there's a special kind of energy of India that is quite healing. But I, I'm just interested in your experience about why you would choose to come here to do exactly that. Well, it's mainly down to my wife, who just loves India. And so she... We were always looking to um, escape uh, cold UK for a period of time. We weren't too sure how long that period of time was going to be. And, and she wanted to come to India. And we came here for Christmas a couple of years ago and bumped into a friend who said that their son was at a local school. And we thought, oh, that's interesting, because we couldn't quite work out what to do with sort of our daughter um, going into the schools, um, how, how the schooling would work. Um, so we went to have a look at the school and... Our daughter seemed to, within five minutes, be very relaxed and happy there. And so we thought, oh, OK, this, maybe, maybe this could work. And so we came here 
not necessarily with loads of forethought, but just with a with a love of India and uh, a desire to uh, desire for a change. I think a lot of parents have been sort of speaking to me since I got here about this sort of alternative system they've got going on here with the schooling. Obviously, it's a lot more relaxed and it's a lot more kind of barefoot and sort mm. of involved in nature and just being, I think, in that environment as a child must be a better start in life in lots of ways than maybe being in the concrete jung- jungle of London. Yeah, it's difficult to know. I mean, I think that you, you, the, the real outcomes of this education system will come about when it's too late for us to make any changes when Lola's 20 or 30 um, and sort of a fully developed adult. Um, and so we'll only know then whether we've completely ruined her life or um, we've, we've done a good thing for her life. But my feeling is that the, the sort of hard um, lessons and sort of lots of tests and drilling these kids at the age of seven and, you know, there's, there's I think there's a seven-plus exam now, there's an 11-plus exam... You know, these, these, these people are young, um, and to put that sort of pressure on them um, doesn't seem to me to be a very sensible way to educate. And uh, Lola's only seven, um, so I think, that, I think that we will just see how this goes. But so far, she seems to be thriving here and loves the outdoor space and loves the freedom and loves being a child. And I think that the longer she's a child, the better. Um, so um, we're... We're reasonably happy at the moment with how things are. Um, the only question is, what is she actually learning and how will that affect her when she comes to go into secondary school and wherever it is? I, I mean, we don't even know where we're going to be for that, that time. So I think that you know, we live in the moment and we live, we live in the now and the future will work itself out. I, you know, I think that you can become too strict about well you know they have to do this because we want to get them into that school I think that wherever she ends up will be the right place for her and um, so it's a bit of a risk but I think for us it's a risk worth taking. I think there was a, a study about schooling that I read not that long ago and it was basically saying that I think it was Finland came out on top and the reason why their schooling was so successful there was just purely because the kids actually for maybe four hours of the entire time they were at school were just in playtime. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's definitely something that India encapsulates in lots of ways because it does allow a lot of time for playtime and there's a lot of space here. I mean, despite the fact that India is one of the most overpopulated countries on the planet, the thing that I find here more than any other is, is space. You know, on the beaches, the long flat beaches, or there's just so much nature to be explored. And I actually got taken off, God only knows where, in my first uh, journey on the way here. The tuk tuk driver took me off into the forest and was like, Oh, you walk down this track and you get to Guru, wherever we are. And I was just like, No, no, the map says I have to get there like that. You're going to have to take me back via the road. And he looked incredibly unimpressed. And we had a little bit of an argument. So that was fun. Um, but, you know, it just kind of reminded me that, you know, obviously there's just so many different paths you can take basically to get that different experience here that kind of will bring you to the same goal at the end uh, of the day and um, I think sometimes it doesn't necessarily matter so much how you get there but um, as long as you do. Yeah I think that I think that's 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 kind of the what we're thinking about this adventure Um, you know it's given us Landy and I some space in our own heads to think differently about the world I think that the big thing that we've learned is that we're not a sort of product or a, an inhabitant of a small borough in London, but we are an inhabitant of the world. And that has allowed us to ask very, very different questions of what we want. So it's not what school should we go to in our catchment area. 
Um, it's more, well, what do we want our life to look like? Do we want to be living in the mountains? Do we want to be living by the sea? Do we want to be living in a hot country? Do we want to be living in a cold country? Suddenly, when you sort of ask yourself those really big questions, everything starts to change, and then it draws up loads of other questions. And so the way that we're thinking now is, is wholly different to the way that we were thinking when we were living in London. And I think that's not a bad thing. And it may be that we go back to London, but it may be that we go somewhere completely different as well. Um, but our minds have definitely been opened, and, um, and, and we're just very lucky that we can be in a position to be able to take that um, jump to come out here for a year without any huge consequences um, sort of financially or socially or however else, wh- whatever other excuses people use to not take this, to do this sort of thing. I think this conversation has, has clarified that you're definitely a reset rebel because ultimately that is like, that's the name of this podcast and it's about people that come to Ibiza and they kind of, um, you know, they've reset themselves already by basically making that jump to go and live on an island and live a slightly alternative way um, of being. And of course, you know, the ultimate aim is to try and sort of talk to people that have not just reset their own path in life but are then working in a way which resets the path of those around them and obviously like just just hearing you talk about the fact that you've kind of left London and it is, you know, it sounds like such a small thing, but I think to leave your environment and a kind of um, a place of security and you're kind of led to believe that, you know, being in a certain environment gives you that safety net, gives you that source of comfort, but actually, you know, it takes a little bit of ball sometimes to get yourself out of your kind of comfort zone and come somewhere and restart. So who knows whether you'll go back, but London's not going anywhere. That's the, that's the good news. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that the, the one thing that, you know, is, is tricky but not sort of insoluble is the, the sort of leaving a family and leaving a friends and that sort of thing, um, especially for sort of Lola at her age. Um, you know, friends are an important part of her life. Um, but I think that this thing teaches you that there are lots of people everywhere that um, you can connect with um but i but yeah i think that we're definitely we're definitely in a reset in the way that we're thinking about the world i just think that the most important thing that any of us need when we pick up and go and start somewhere else is community and the thing that i love most on my morning sort of i call them meditation walks but basically go for a stroll every morning wherever i am in the world it doesn't matter as soon as i wake up that's what i do and going you know through the villages even just round the back between Patnam and Palalem, I always take a little cut through there in the morning and I just love the way that everyone lives sort of on top of each other and there is just such a beautiful simplicity to life here and it's very interconnected by the very nature of the fact that they've all got houses kind of on top of each other with very thin bits of bamboo sometimes between them and obviously they're all going to hear exactly what the other is up to but you know it's all it's acceptance isn't it of living in such close proximity and in that close knitted way and I think that you know Obviously, you find other mums and dads that have moved here and are kind of living that lifestyle. And, you know, everybody needs to make new friends. So everyone's very friendly here. And that's mm. what I've kind of encountered since I got here. So, But I guess you couldn't have done the work that we're here to talk about today um, unless you had been in London where you began mm. this clinical trial. Because yeah. something tells me that there might not be so many uh, partakers or willing participants to get involved and on board this incredible project that you put together, um, which started four years ago. So do yeah. you want to tell us maybe... The idea behind it. Why did you decide to start creating this uh, documentary? So, um, which is called, by the way, <laughs> Magic Medicine. Yes. Um, so, Magic Medicine came about because Lizzie, who's the executive producer of the of the documentary, read an article in the Evening Standard and then rang me and said we should make this film together. And she knew someone that knew Robin, um, who was the clinical lead trial. 
And um, that person very, very kindly gave us a wonderful email introduction to Robin um, saying that if you ever did think of making a documentary, um, you know, you should consider these guys. The least I can say is that you can, you, you'll be able to trust them, which for the first ever trial to use a psych- psychedelic drug in the UK in a medical trial in, um, and also sort of working with people who had mental health issues and suffered from depression and that sort of stuff was a really important um, uh, sort of attribute, if you like, to have. So we went to see Robin and he said no to begin with. And then after the first 12 patients of the 20 that were doing the trial had gone through the process and he felt confident that they had got their systems right and that it was showing promise, um, the results were looking good, he called us back in and said, you know, are you interested? And we said, absolutely, definitely. Um, But by then there were only five people who had not started the first dose had not had not taken their first dose and I felt like it was important to to be with people before their first dose and then follow them all the way through to up to two years afterwards actually as it turned out I didn't know that at the time um so we got permission and then like two days later I was on a train to Scotland to film with John who was the um, first person that we were to film with on the trial um and then it and then it just progressed from there um and it was an amazing, it was an amazing journey. I mean, I'd made films before, but not um, ad- in TV. And then I'd left TV for about ten years. And then this was the first film that I was making on my own, um, and that I loved. I, it was so nice not to have to answer to anyone and to do it in the way that I wanted to do it. And it's a, quite an old-fashioned way of filmmaking, my way, um, which is to sort of observe and document. And of course, you're you're affecting what's in front of you because you're, you know, you've got a camera and you're asking questions. But um, there was no construction, there were no scenes where I asked them to do anything. It was just literally filming what was in front of me and just deciding what to film. So I'd sometimes be with them for days and just have the camera on my lap for, you know, for, you know a day and a half. Um, and then something would happen and I'd go, ah, oh, now that's what I want to film, and I'd film that. And I think that generated a lot of trust in, from them towards me. Um, which was critical to the success of the project because I think if they didn't trust me, I'd never have got some of the stuff that they told me. I mean, they were telling me stuff that they hadn't told sort of their you know, family and that sort of stuff because, because that trust was so deep. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty... It was a, it was a really extraordinary adventure for everyone, I think. Um, and that's how it started. I mean, trust is definitely the theme here, I think, in lots of ways, because um, I think for them to even embark on such a journey, I mean, maybe they were at such a point in their lives where they were desperate. And from the footage that I've seen of the, um, the initial trailer, mm-hmm. you know, you definitely got right into the root of, you know, their real kind of opening up. And <laughs> I do love the sound effects up here. <laughs> Sound like we were in an aircraft hangar a minute ago when you, uh, you were just telling us about that whole phrase. It's brilliant. Um, that is the train of Canacona passing yeah, through? Yeah, it's just uh, over, the, uh, over the fields and beyond the highway. But I don't think there's anywhere in Patnam that you can't hear the train. Um, it has a wonderful quality to its horn. <laughs> it doesn't it, doesn't it just? <laughs> I was going to call it like a rumble in the jungle, but um, that was even better. Um, so, yeah, trust, I think, you know, Clearly, you know, for you to have been allowed into their kind of inner, innermost uh, sanctum and, and home, 
um, is a is a beautiful thing. And for you know, to be able to have filmed like that in such a way, um, almost like I guess they would have imagined they would have forgotten that you were actually filming. Um, but I feel like for them to have decided to to embark on this, how did they recruit the people that actually signed up to this in the first place? How did they find them? Um, so I think it was self-selecting. I think they put an advert somewhere, and um, and then um, people with inquisitive minds would um, have been researching solutions for depression because these people had suffered from depression for an average of 18 years so they've been in it for a long time they know that antidepressants aren't doing what they want to do and they sort of hate them and so they um they they found out about the trial by hook or by crook i'm not sure exactly how and um uh, and just wrote to robin or david nuts and said you know can i be part of this trial and if they fit fitted the criteria of untreatable depression which is roughly defined as three interventions in the current um, sort of um, stretch of depression that they were experiencing, um, and neither none of them have, none of them have sort of cured them, if you like. Um, then then they were they were they came in for an interview with Robin and the team, uh, and then on the back of that interview they would be told whether they could be part of the trial or not. Um, and on this trial, everyone got the drug, so there was no placebo or anything like that. Um, but going back to that trust thing very quickly, the, the, one of the things that helped them, I think, probably, was that from day one we said to them that if at any point you want to pull out of the film, then you can. You know, your, your mental health is much more important than, than my film. Once it got to sort of two or three years in, um, we sort of renegotiated that to say that, look, you know, we've obviously invested all this time and effort and money and that sort of thing into this thing, um, but and so maybe we can say now you can't pull out of the whole thing, but you do have a right to reply. So if I've if I've misrepresented you in some way, or if, if if I've misrepresented the trial, or if I've done something that you don't agree with, or if there's just something in there that you actually don't, even though you said it, you actually don't think it anymore or whatever, then you can take that out. Um, and I think that gave them enormous comfort to know that um, they were in control in that sense. Um, and I think that was probably a good uh, that was an important part of, of getting them on board and getting them to trust me which they which they were right to mm. well they've got to be in control of something which I'm sure has felt like something that they've been very unable to control for so long and, and obviously I'm, I'm sure that this is a trial that kind of opened that whole pathway for them their neural pathways as well to experience something completely new which was I would imagine feelings of um happiness and and maybe a, a new way to experience life and you know what kind of debilitating kind of states were these people and when you first sort of met them were you was it weird to kind of be in their personal space for such prolonged periods of times when they were in such a state or how, how quickly did this progress manifest um well there are two things there the first thing to say is that um there were people on the trial who experienced um bliss and met god and and, and had these wonderful experiences um that some people who take these drugs hedonistically experience the sort of laughter and the happiness and that sort of thing and the sense of connection with the world and stuff like that. The two of the three that I filmed with had the worst experiences of their lives ever. Um, and um, that, um, that was combined with, with feeling an enormous sense of joy as well, and sometimes in the space of half an hour. Um, but it, it was definitely no... Um, joyride for them it was a, a ride to hell basically um, because it took them right back to the seat of their depression and made them see it again so um, as I say there were people that, that had nice experiences but um, the guys that I with 
that I film with, I don't know why, but just had very, very nasty experiences that they, that they wouldn't um, wish on anyone. Um, in terms of being with them during their depression, um, it was kind of strange. I've never, I've never experienced depression myself directly, um, and no one around me has really um, suffered in a, um, a sort of really sort of meaningful way. So um, I hadn't ever experienced what it was like. I really love being in their company. I think that I, I would say maybe they were a bit different around me just because um, I wasn't there all the time. And so it was just something new and interesting um, for me to be there. And so they were always really engaging and really interesting and had lots to say that I thought was really fascinating about the world. And I was really interested in them, which is which is which is nice for them to experience, I'm sure. Um, so, so I kind, of, I, I kind of enjoyed being in their company. I think that if I was living with them for weeks on end, that would be different because John would often spend, you know, most of the day and then weeks on end and months on end kind of in his room, you know, stuck there. And he told me this, he told me, I was asking him why he sort of, if he can if he can scroll around on the internet, which is what he does, um, why can't he, you know, cook in the kitchen or um, do something with the family sort of thing? And he said that basically what he does is that he, he tries to um, find a subject that is really, really complicated and then he goes really deep into that subject, whether it's philosophy, academic, whatever, uh, so that he can fill his brain with thinking on this thing. Because the moment there's a little bit of space in his brain, that's when the feeling of worthlessness comes in, the guilt attached with not being the father that he would like to be comes in, the fact that he's you know, ruining his family, he would much, he'd be much better if he was dead. You know, all of these thoughts come in when there's a little bit of space. And so he has to keep his mind completely, 100% occupied. And that, for me, just gave me an enormous insight into what this depression feels like or certainly for him anyhow and that is an awful thing to hear and then obviously to to be living that I just can't imagine what it's like to be living that um so so for me the whole thing was just massively eye-opening I wasn't I wasn't quite in the bracket of oh just snap out of it you know you've got a nice family and you know you're you're not sort of living on the streets of Mumbai um but I probably wasn't a million miles away from that. And then having made this film, I, I, my eyes and attitudes and everything have been so opened up to the horrors of depression um, that, um, that it's made me a much better person, much more compassionate, much more understanding. I think that is something that a lot of, you know, a lot of us lack, is that empathy. And it's, um, well, until you've experienced something, until you've been to rock bottom and down the rabbit hole for months on end, and, you know, it's not really something that many people wish to discuss either because it's um i think particularly in england it's like almost like a great source of shame or that you've failed in life that you're mm. depressed and you don't know how to get out of it mm. and you know i think that that's incredibly sad and films like this are incredibly important to show exactly you know the depths that one can sink to and that's not, nothing to do with failure or but you know i think a lot of people busy themselves to stay away from exactly that this 
idea of coming to Goa and, you know, kind mm. of having a, a year off. I mean, a lot of people just can't cope with that. They need to be doing something. Mm. They need to have a purpose. They need to mm. have a, you know, it be achieving something daily to feel important and have a self-worth on this planet, which isn't rare. I think that's what a lot of people, uh, well, we're conditioned to believe that's kind of how it is. So it's interesting to explore that through film. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the whole film. But you have quite a strong opinion, obviously, on uh, antidepressants, which Mm. clearly you've said um, from what you've witnessed that they don't work, obviously, I guess, from these people's particular experience. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they they, they do work for some people. um, But I think it's sort of uh, two thirds or a half of people don't respond to antidepressants. And the thing that I found interesting about antidepressants when I was looking into them was that they don't, um, they don't really sort of cure you on, on the whole. I think that some people can take them and just take themselves out of a sort of blue period in their lives and so they take antidepressants and then they stop taking them and then they're done but I think that once you get on to taking antidepressants every day to, to, to live to cope um, then that is not a happy place to be because they don't they don't they, they make you from what I understand from John and Andy and Mark is that they they make you cope with life a little bit but um, they don't make you better and what they're saying is that for people like them they start on a single dose or a low dose or whatever dose they start on and then they carry on going up to the highest dose of that particular antidepressant and then, and then that stops working. And then they have to come off that, which is horrific from what I understand. The, the, the side effects of coming off these drugs is horrific. They get put on another drug, which was pretty much the same thing with a slightly different sort of compounds. And then they start at whatever level they start with that, and then they work their way out to that top of that one, and then they do the same again. And they're in this cycle of taking the drugs that aren't actually doing anything for them, apart from maybe chopping the top and bottom off and just giving them, allowing them to get out of bed, maybe, or whatever it is that it allows them to do. And, and that doesn't really feel like a sort of sensible way to treat this illness. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me that you're not treating it, you're just putting people in a holding pattern, basically. Um, And so that that never made sense to me, whereas psilocybin seems to, and again, more research is required, but it seems to take you to the heart of your depression or the seat of your depression, reveal it to you in a slightly different way, Mm -hmm. and then with counselling and reintegration therapy that comes after that, and there should have been more of that in the trial, which they've realised in the new trial that started a couple of weeks ago... um, has got lots, lots more reintegration therapy to try and to try and build on what they learnt in their sessions. Um, it makes you look at the world differently. I mean, John was absolutely um, completely cured of his depression for at least six weeks after the, after having a single dose of a single treatment dose of psilocybin. He was cured of his depression. He was, he was out walking the dogs. He wanted to get involved in family affairs. He was, you know, he was busy around the house. You know, he was annoying his children by telling them what to do, and sort of whereas he, whereas he wasn't really present before. And that, that it's after, you know, for him it was probably a decade of taking antidepressants and and basically being bedridden and house ridden, house, you know, house ridden, house bound, um, for you know those ten years. That is an extraordinary turnaround. That feels like treatment to me. That feels like um, there is something that was going on there. And it would be lovely to redose him 
and see whether that continues, whether the next time he gets 12 weeks and the next time he gets six months and whatever. We just don't know. And that's why we need to make this research easier so that we can um, play around with this drug and work out what the best method of treatment is for different people. I mean, we interviewed, um, I'm keeping an eye on the time, but we, um, we interviewed, or I interviewed, Will Siouv, a psychologist based in the States who works closely with MAPS, and he was using MDMA for clinical trials uh, for psychotherapy patients. And, you know, same thing. It was like they had a lot of one-on-one treatment whilst under the influence. And so I was kind of interested in the kind of support network and also the exit plan for those trials to mm. sort of understand what happens you know he's cured for six months but then what happens after that and and what now what next because one Mm. when one has experienced six weeks of a break from something that's Mm. you know crippling Mm. and obviously extremely debilitating and sad for him you know that must be almost worse to come out the other side and go back to where he was before Mm. after his family have experienced that glimpse of of daddy being back on the scene and playing Mm. a part in the family that must be actually quite heartbreaking yeah, and I mean, I, I, that's why we need to make the research easier because then they can there can be clinics set up around the country where it's possible to redose people in that way. But the problem with clinical trials is that you set out as the, the the researchers set out what exactly they're going to do. They're going to get one dose on week one, the second dose a week later, and then they get this reintegration therapy or two sessions of reintegration therapy, and then they're done and they have a few questionnaires to fill out for the next six months after that, and then six months they're finished. And um, you know, it turns out that actually that's a completely inadequate formula for these people who have been suffering from depression for 10 years. And, and they probably knew that before they, before they set the trial up, but there's nothing that they can do about it. You can't write to the FDA or the, you know, the ethics board or whoever it is that, that signs all these trials off and say, uh, we want to do a trial with an illegal drug and we basically just want to do whatever we want, however we feel like we want to do it, which is really what you want to do with a drug like this because because it's so experimental, it needs to be. It needs to have that sort of experimental nature. They're just never going to sign off on that. But why are not, magic mushrooms not legal? They grow out of the ground all over England, everywhere. And you know, I live in Ibiza. I take chocolates, you know, mm. whenever. Not just to go out and have fun, but mm. you know, to sit around on my balcony and have a good mm. old think about things. Like, mm. you know, it 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 is an amazing thing until you've experienced it. I mean, you know, people are sitting at home, bloody hippies, but at the end of the day, like, it will take you to the root cause of Mm. things that you cannot unravel yourself until you're shown it by something that connects you more closely to nature and your way of being Mm. that you can't see until you're you're in it. Yeah. I mean, my feeling about um, whether they should be legal or not is that they should definitely be illegal still, but they're Schedule 1 at the moment, and that means that they are... Make, it's very, very hard to do research with them. And that I have a problem with. I don't, I don't have a problem with them being illegal because, um, you know, if, if you see, when you see the film, you'll realise where it can take you and how that can be dangerous. And I know that there are millions of people around the world who are taking magic mushrooms every year and there's only, you know, a handful, tiny, tiny number of cases where something terrible and tragic happens. But that's probably not a good enough reason to not make them illegal but I do have a real problem with the fact that they um, they are, are still in schedule one which is making it hard to do this research because I think that it would be wonderful to take it out of schedule one stick it in schedule four or schedule two or whatever and and then just allow these sort of um, pop-up centers to um, treat you know medically treat 
people using magic mushrooms um, because I think I mean I think that the people that want them can get them I guess um, and I think that's probably enough I think that there are people out there well in fact if you look at the sort of mental health um, numbers now especially in young people they are going absolutely through the roof and add a little bit of psilocybin to that or magic mushrooms to that and that can take people to a very, very dark place that they are absolutely not prepared for. If they think that magic mushrooms are this thing that is just, you know, a, a little bit of fun and giggles with your friends and family, they could get the shock of their lives if they get into a bad trip, especially if there are people around them who aren't experienced in taking those drugs and aren't there to go, don't worry, you know, you're just, you're just having a bad trip, go in and through it, um, you know, sort of... Um, let it do what it wants to do to you, but you're safe here with me or whatever. If someone goes, oh, my God, oh, my God, and then the, you go, oh, my God, oh, my God, and then that guy's chasing me, that guy gave me a weird look, we better get the fuck out of here, um, then that's when those dangers, that's when those really, really tragic things happen. So, I, you know, I agree that they grow everywhere, and I think, as I say, the people that, the people that want them can probably go out and find them, but I, I think it's best to keep them in, um, keep them, keep them in the sort of illegal category of drugs, um, but, but make it easier to do the research with them. Mm. I mean, half of uh, you know, uh, Silicon Valley are kind of microdosing on, on mushrooms, and yeah, they're yeah, obviously yeah. S- allegedly yeah. incredible for creativity and yeah. opening up those neural pathways that lead you into places where you can you know, see things from yeah. a different perspective. Untested, and- though. I mean, that, that there's no, been no clinical trials that are testing that. I think that um, the Beckley Foundation were going to do one. I'm not sure if they actually started it or not. And then I heard another another organisation was going to do a clinical trial on microdosing as well. So um, all of that, all of that, all of those thoughts are just people talking about their own personal experiences. And we have no idea whether we, if we gave them a placebo, whether actually they would have, they would say the same thing. So um, we, yeah, I, 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 I've read all those things as well, but um, but there's no. Um, sort of clinical evidence that microdosing actually works. I was reading a, a little article actually from jo- Dr. Joe Dispenza, who's this big kind of guru in the kind of like spiritual world right now. Fascinating, fascinating man, talking about the placebo effect as well. And he was just kind of saying, it's just such a powerful thing. And I loved mm-hmm. it because it's like basically we all have the power yeah. to heal ourselves. Yeah. You know, as humans, that's what we have on board is all the answers. But unfortunately, sometimes they're inaccessible for one reason or another. And I, I just found it really interesting to read into, yeah, the, the kind of science, really, I guess, behind people's mental capacity to, you know, really feel something that's not actually clinically yeah. happening in the body. So yeah. that was a really interesting point. Well, they have done trials on placebo effects. And the trials are saying that it, it's the most powerful thing out there, basically. Um, uh, and they, I think that they look back at, they look back at loads of, because obviously the placebo has been used in, all trials everywhere kind of thing. Um, and they look back at um, loads of trials that have happened in the past and then correlated all that data and created this new paper, which I've got on my phone, actually. I can send it to you. Um, but, yeah, I mean, extraordinary results for the placebo effect. It's like, oh, my God, why don't we just use this? It'll solve everything. Um, so, um, so in that sense, the placebo effect is, is way ahead of, um, of microdosing in terms of, actual empirical evidence for it working. 
I just, well, it blew my mind, actually. Like, I was almost like, well, what's the point in even going to the doctor? Do you know what I mean? You may as well just take a magic sugar pill and just, uh, yeah. yeah, obviously you need to have the wall pulled over your eyes a little bit. And how has this sort of experience changed your opinion of sort of depression and the way it should be treated? I mean, it's a ridiculous question in some ways because obviously you feel like this uh, research needs to go deeper. But what did you, what did you take away from it? I think probably the main thing was just how completely horrific depression is. Um, For people that are are, are suffering in the way that the um, guys that I filmed with were suffering, um, and their families, actually, around them, um, it's just utterly, utterly, utterly horrific in a way that I could not have imagined beforehand. Um, And I think that that's that's the main thing. And I guess off the back of that, you start thinking, wow, you know, I really am lucky to not experience any of that sort of stuff. Um, but I think that, that for me, absolutely, that's the, that's the, that was the main takeaway um, um, in terms of understanding depression. Um, as, I, as I said earlier, I, I've never experienced it myself, so it was, a real, it was a real eye-opener. It was a real eye-opener. And I have so much respect and admiration for those, those three individuals and their partners and families um, for, A, taking part in the film, but... You know, for B, just getting up every day and living. Um, I know that a lot of them have thought about um, sort of, well, probably all of them, in fact, have thought about taking their lives at some point. Um, you know, whether just in a sort of state of utter disrepair or seriously. Um, but, you know, someone like Mark gets up every single day and goes to work every single day sort of gardening or whatever he's doing. He takes the dog for a walk. He does his own... He, you know, he's doing up his own house in, in, in the best way that he can. Um, he's doing everything he can to try and get better, but it's just not working. And, you know, if you watch the film and you hear him describe how he feels throughout the film in different parts of the film, you just think, my God, you know... That takes courage. That is courage. You know, courage is not coming out to Goa and, and spending a year here, um, having been in London for however long. Courage is getting out every day, knowing that you're going to feel as shit as you did yesterday, and you know that it's not going to get better. And it's been like that for 30 years, and you get up and you do it every day still, and you don't just go and hang yourself. You know, that, that is... Um, I have enormous respect for those guys for doing that every day and everyone else suffering from depression in that way. Mm. Oh, Making me feel a bit tearful. Yeah, I just that is exactly it. It is very courageous and very brave and um, I do definitely really seriously want to watch this film because it sounds like you had a, yeah, an amazing experience. But what's next for you? I mean, what, after having done that, obviously you're here in Goa for a year to kind of take stock of everything and... Um, I guess, obviously, you know, experience your daughter's wonderful new um, experience at school. But what's, you know, what, what's next for you? Are you going to make something else? Or you, do you want to go deeper into this mental health story? Or are you done with that? Or what are you thinking? I think as a filmmaker, I probably wouldn't go deeper unless I felt like there was a story that hadn't been told. Um, and so I think that I probably won't make another film, certainly not make another film about this particularly anyhow. Um, What's next? I think that this year is all about clearing the mind of everything. Um, and How did you sort of not take that stuff home with you? I mean, you literally spent a day with someone who was literally down the rabbit hole in the worst possible state of mind. Some of that must, just a little bit of it, must have rubbed off on you to some degree when you have experienced that for a whole 24-hour period. I mean, did you go home feeling 
Whew, thank God I'm, you know, back home in my normal environment. Or did you feel a little bit like, oh my God, like, you know, you're sort of like you were kind of almost picking up some of those kind of uh, vibrations? Uh, it's a tricky one. I think that you touched on it earlier on um, when you were talking about unless you're in their mind, you don't really get it. So I was really shocked uh, by some of the things that I heard. Um, and I sort of, even even in the film, there are, there are some moments in the film where every time I hear it, I feel like everything just drops out of me. I just, I, I feel so low hearing hearing those words come out of those people's mouths every now There are three or four points in the film where I feel that. Um, and it just, it's just completely heartbreaking. Um, but I'm just, I'm just not living their life. And so I don't know whether it's just enormously callous. I don't think it is because I'm not really that sort of person. But, um, you know, I come home and I've got an amazing wife and beautiful daughter and I've got a happy life and I, I treasure it. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe I treasure it more um, because of experiencing um, sort of other people's misfortune, for want of a better phrase. What did you want to achieve with the film, lastly? Because I, I feel like, you know, yes, you wanted to make a documentary and yes, we all have to make a living, but ultimately, was there a kind of a goal? Is there something you wished someone specific could have maybe seen it or there was a kind of change in the law or change in science or the way we kind of deal with medicine or to put people off antidepressants or what was it? So when I was making the film, there, were, there was no ulterior motive there was no goal there was no I mean we said to Robin at the beginning look um, it's great that you want us to make this film but we're not going to make it I said I'm definitely not going to make it if you want us just to make a puff piece about the trial so I will I will follow the story that I see Um, and if that's positive that's great and if that's negative that's that's the way it is I'm sorry about that Um, and so we need access all areas Um, we need to be able to ask you anything um, and we need to be able to sort of, you know, push you on things that you, if you're hiding things from us. And to their credit, they said, yes, no problem. And they absolutely stood true to that. And so there wasn't any time where I was told by them, no, you can't film in here or no, I'm not going to answer that question. Or no, we don't want to talk about that because actually that, that doesn't reflect well on us sort of thing. We got completely, absolutely unfettered access to them. And it was an incredible boon I think for them and the film is so much better for it um, obviously with the trial volunteers they had they had the right to say no but the, the scientists um, they didn't and so during the filming process we had no ulterior motive apart from to document the story in the best and most honest way that I could that was my, that was my goal and, and that is slightly old fashioned filmmaking there was no construction there was no you know, trying to manipulate the truth. There was no trying to sort of manipulate people to do things to try and make a bit more drama. I felt that there was enough drama in this story for it to survive on its own merits. So that was during the film. When the film came to the end, when I came to the, when it came to the finish of the edit, we sort of we had to work out what the ending was, and so we tweaked the ending a little bit just to give it a hint of something that people could go away with feeling, you know. I, I want to do something about this, or that's outrageous, or oh, I feel a bit happier now, or whatever it is. You, you, when you see the film, you can see the ending. Um, and um, and at that point, and then at the point of after people had started seeing it and coming up to me afterwards, saying, "Oh my God, Monty, that's amazing! I've loved it," and um, um, you know, it, it really made me think about this, this, and this, and this. Then we started thinking, well, 
what do we do with this now? We've clearly touched people in some way. Um, do we do anything more about it? And so I think the next steps for us is to try and get it seen by big mental health charities and try and get them on board to run a campaign of some kind to help make research easier um, or just get all of these senior people from the NHS or from Mind or from Bernardo's or whatever it is, heads together, and um, get them in a room and, and go, OK, here's the film. How, how, do we, how do we make research easier? Um, and I think that that would, be, that would be a wonderful thing for the film. But that's, that's a, it's a long way away, you know. This, these things take a long time to change. The fact that cannabis is changing now may have broken the glass ceiling and maybe now people will realise, actually, let's not be stupid about this. There's so much evidence out there to say that cannabis works, so we should definitely make that, um, take that out of Schedule 1. Um, and then maybe the same for maybe we should start thinking about these other drugs in a slightly more open-minded kind of way. And maybe Brexit will help us. Maybe that will be the one positive thing about Brexit, which is that, you know, we, we take control of our um, sort of rules and guidelines around what drugs are, can be used and not used. And it could be that it's a chance for the UK to become a complete thought leader in this stuff um, and, um, and, and be the world leader in, in treatment of depression using psychedelics. <laughs> that sounds clean. highly unlikely. I would really love that to be a possibility. It sounds like a, it's a dream. Yeah, a, dream. a bit of a pipe dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, if you don't dream, then you know what, what can you do? So yeah, so I think that I think that that's basically what we're trying to do is is, is raise awareness amongst influential people so that at least they at least they see firsthand what I saw, and I think that that can't not change the way that they think about this. Um, and um, and it might be that nothing happens with that person for five years, but then they're in they're, they're in some government quango, and um, this sort of question comes up, and it, it you know they've seen the film and they think actually you know this 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 stuff really was worth employing is worth pursuing, um, but yeah I don't know. Have you experimented with psychedelics? Yeah, I have. When I was when I was a kid, um, or when I was younger, I was probably in my twenties. And, and, and maybe that's why I was so intrigued by this combination of depression, which I didn't know much about, but I sort of knew wasn't great, um, and psychedelics. And I couldn't, when I first heard about it, I couldn't work out how it was going to work. And I couldn't ever in my wildest dreams have imagined the experiences that the volunteers that I filmed would, would, uh, would go through um, were. So... That, I think that, that was part of the reason why I thought the film was so interesting or, the, or the, the, the story in the film was so interesting was, you know, how do you marry these two things that seem completely opposite and, in fact, sort of would have a negative effect on, um, uh, on the people taking them? How does that work? And I think that that was the driving force for the film, really. And so people come to the film having, um, having their views on depression, having their views on psychedelics... And this film completely turns all of those views upside down and the wrong way round, and, and people come out of the film educated in a way that, that I think very little else can educate people. You can't sit people down in a lecture hall and go, OK, look at all these things. That's, you know, people will leave with the, probably the same mindset as they came. But the film is a wonderful way of, of re-educating people both about depression and um, psychedelics. David Nutt said it was the best film about depression that he's ever seen, and every time he sees the film, he likes it more and more. And for me, that's a huge compliment. 
Well, uh, all credit to you, and thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. And um, yeah, here in this wonderful little treetop piece of paradise, it's um, yeah, it's been really great to chat to you. And I can't wait to see the film when you are doing some screenings or ask potential last screening here in Goa. Is there anything planned? For, I would go on the website, and I saw that there's some other screenings planned for around the world. So where's next? Well, we are there. So the screenings, the, the cinema screenings, are happening in the UK mainly. Um, there are screenings that are happening around the world, but they are sort of conference screenings. Um, and so that's the other strategy that we have. The other sort of arm to our thinking is that mental health conferences and psychedelic conferences, um, or just people interested in this thing, can buy a license for the film and then they can show it to their community of 150 people or 3,000 people or whatever it is that they've got going, um, or 20 people. Um, uh, and so that's something else that we're trying to sort of push as well to try and get it out there. And that allows us to reach into um, uh, sort of foreign markets from the UK. Um, we've got an international sales distributor person. Um, you can see that this is not my forte. Um, who is doing TV sales worldwide. Um, and so we've made a one-hour version for him. Um, and he is trying to sell it worldwide um, to TV networks. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is being shown worldwide. But like with all these things, if we had you know, 100,000 quid, then we could invest in doing all this stuff. But this has been a no-budget film from day one. Um, and, um, and I just wanted to make the film. I got this terrible shock at the end of the film where I thought, oh, this is brilliant, I've finished. You know, two years of work, three years of work is finished. And then it was like, well, what are you going to do with it now? And I was like, oh, I hadn't really thought about distribution because this is the first time that I've done this. Um, and so distribution was a whole new... Learning and it's been a it's been a very interesting and painful learning experience. Um, but um, we're incredibly lucky, lucky to have Dharmath Films doing the distribution for us. They are absolutely the best at uh, distributing these sort of slightly niche um, documentaries. They completely specialise in it. Um, but and without them, you know, probably like thirty people would have seen the film. My parents and some brothers and that sort of stuff, and that's about it. So it's been it's been brilliant that lots of other people have seen it, and that we have these new other strands that can allow people from all over the world to see it too. I think it's also showing at Breaking Convention this um, this August. Um, I was just speaking to the, to um, one of the organisers last night, um, and that's a that's a a sort of. Um, a, a conference that's been happening for about 10 years there'd be about 1500 people there from the world of psychedelics and the world of mental health and all sorts of um, there's all sorts of mix of people there um, so it'd be really interesting to show the film there and then use that as a networking time for us to see if there's any other opportunities that bubble up out of that so we're looking forward to that as well Amazing. Sounds like you've got some good plans and some good irons and some good film fires, if that's a, if that's a little phrase. Um, we would obviously love you to bring this to Ibiza, and we have got a little festival that's brewing for the Reset Rebel, um, which maybe I could have a little chat to you about, but it would be great. Have you got any plans to come to Ibiza? No plans yet, um, but um, always, open to, always open to suggestions, and, um, and we would love it to be shown at the festival, so um, keep us up to date. I think there's a, a big audience for that kind of stuff over there. There's a lot of healing festivals. There's one uh, at the start of the year and one at Ibiza 
spirit festival at the end but we're hoping to create something a little bit more psychedelic friendly um, in October so we'll, uh, we'll have a little chat about that but thanks again for joining us here on the show and making time before you go and pick up your Lola from school Thank you very much, it's nice to meet you and uh, nice to chat it through Reset Rebel It's the Reset Rebel It's the Reset Rebel It's the Reset Rebel